Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier, and along with Richard Johnson, we are joined by our man in the know, Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. Today, we head to Scotland for two very different tales, starting with the hero to heartbreak story of Lower League Gretna. Then moving to Edinburgh to hear about the trials and tribulations of hearts. But before we get into all of that, if you're listening to this, please leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and why not recommend it to a friend. Also, while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at Sporf and give Nick Harris a follow at Sporting Intel. Nick, off to Scotland today. Yes, episode six, specifically looking at uh, the 2005-06 season where Tiny Gretna owned by a maverick from Sunderland called Brooks Mileson, reached the Scottish Cup final that season. And they lost on penalties to Hearts, owned by a maverick Lithuanian Russian businessman, Vladimir Romanov. And it's those two clubs we're looking at. We're going to sort of start in, in this season and see what panned out for those two clubs. But let's just say it's chaos. Let's go to Gretna. Um, Nick, it's a small town. Not much goes on, but this is where our story starts. Yeah, we'll start with Gretna. So Gretna is uh, obviously famous for being next to Gretna Green, where English people um, go to elope because of the lax of marriage laws there. Right. Uh, it's a town, although it's got a population of a village, about 2,700 people. And the football club was founded in 1946. Despite being a Scottish club, they played amateur and semi-pro leagues from 1947 until 2002 when they were elected and accepted into the Scottish league system, playing in the in the league system in the country where they're actually based. And at this point, they had backing from this businessman, tycoon, rags to riches guy, Brooks Mileson, who's um, a really interesting, charismatic guy. And they would go from the bottom division to the SPL, the top division in five seasons, reaching the Scottish Cup final in that 2006 season up against Hearts. And it went to penalties and they lost on penalties. But it was, you know, it it seemed to be a fantastic sort of fairy tale of Gretna. But it wasn't all as it seemed and it didn't end well. The way you've described it there, Nick, apart from the it doesn't end well, it's got a real Roar of the Rovers flavour to it. You know, overcoming adversity, going from the bottom to the top. Where could it all go wrong? Exactly. I mean, Brooks Marston's story himself, he, he, he ponytailed Sunderland-born eccentric who'd made a fortune in business and gave much of it away to struggling football clubs at different different levels. I mean, he was definitely defined in the public's mind, certainly in Scotland, by the, the rise of Gretna, um, who he bankrolled to the top division. He'd actually been raised in a housing estate, in the Pennywell estate in Sunderland, and he spent much of his life overcoming disability and ill health. He broke his back after being sort of swept away in a landslide in a quarry. He lost a kidney. Um, he describes that accident at 11 as the main determining point in my life. He told me, I thought I'm not going to lie back for the rest of my life. I've started to drag myself around. Eventually I walked and then I ran. I mean, it sounds unbelievable, but he recovered from, from breaking his back to, to not only walk and then run, but win um, a, a 1967 National Junior Cross Country Championships. And he gave up running, started a career in the building industry, 
he started a, a construction firm which he built up and sold for 17 million pounds then he moved into insurance he built a firm up and and made sold that for 47 million pounds so that was the bulk of his his money he didn't then make it into it even bigger but you know for a guy who started with nothing to have a fortune of 70 million it absolutely put him in the realms where he could give money away to, to small clubs and for a little club like Gretna even to propel them up to the top of the Scottish league system didn't take tens of millions of pounds we estimate maybe over the period he perhaps spent eight million but he was a rich guy and he he invested um albeit eccentrically in Gretna unlike the characters that we've met so far on football and covered going into your notes and going into the the background of him he seems to be well liked well respected and a nice guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of his employees um, described him as ha- having a heart as big as a dustbin lid. He enjoyed his money. He helped causes. He wasn't very health conscious, let's say that, to say the least. He- his diet basically consisted of 100 cigarettes a day. He only took up smoking at the age of 48. I've never known anyone smoke so many cigarettes. 100 a day he was. Was he just was... making up for lost time, was he? I think so. I mean, why would you start smoking at 48? So his basic diet was cigarettes, Lucasaid, coffee and chips. And by his mid-50s and before he became involved with Gretna, he'd already suffered two heart attacks and had treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome. He had serious intestinal and neurological conditions. But he told me when I first met him and interviewed him, this club is my soul. My specialist says that this has put years on my life. I'd probably have ended up croaking if I hadn't come to Gretna. So he was an interesting character. I think like out of all the people we've covered so far, just sort of hearing those things about him, probably put him in the same category as the, as, as the Venkis a little bit really, where like they've got established business, well-to-do. Shame that he's of ill health, but... Um... I think the big question is, why Gretna? Yeah, a good question. I think he probably saw it. Once they got accepted into the Scottish League, it was a project that he could absolutely take full control of. He knew that realistically, by spending a few million pounds, they'd be able to move up through the divisions. And I guess the dream was, I mean, he, he said he, he, he always had a very community focused take on it so he wanted a women's team and he wanted a junior team and he had that he he matched days he hired jugglers and fire throwers and stuff to entertain the crowds at their Raydale Park you know he just thought it would be fun to give the town this this great adventure and that's what happened I mean he ran a private menagerie in his spare time he had llamas and abandoned exotic animals like I said he's donated money to clubs and he once tried and failed to buy Carlisle United I think this was probably him seeing an opportunity to make a mark on professional football, but without spending the kind of money you would need to do that, say, in England. Obviously, he was in charge of the club and he, he was dishing out very juicy wages for that level, but there were some sort of bonuses and, and perks that were uh, a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, the bonuses included um, borrowing his Aston Martin for a week. If a player scored a, a goal or whatever, they could borrow the Aston Martin. Wages were dished out by personal checks from him alone, which was slightly quirky. Um, new footballs and even lunch for Gretna's junior team uh, was financed from his pocket. He famously eschewed the trappings of sort of the boardroom to stand dressed in jeans with his fellow supporters, you know, on the terraces on match day. And, and on the day they reached the 2006 Scottish Cup final, um, he actually had um, uh, lunch with the with the fans in the local chippy. And I spoke to him on the day of, of the cup final as he was standing outside this chippy opposite Hamden Park, having had a pre-lunch match of chips, Lucasaid and five cigarettes. 
I mean, you got to meet him as well. And obviously this is all well and good and people can sort of make out how they want to be, especially in this day and age. But what was your sort of vibe from him on a one-to-one level? I think the first time I met him, I went to the club, which at that point had the officers in some sort of porter cabins. It was, you know, a tiny little ground. Eventually it wasn't fit for for SPL football when they got there. Um, Open on three sides and the fourth side was basically a shed. So... As I said, the officers were in a porter cabin. It was full of smoke. I visited his estate at one point, and again, he showed, he introduced me to the llamas. Um, he was, as I said, very friendly, very approachable. If there was one sort of drawback to his popularity, is that he wasn't necessarily so popular throughout Scottish football because people very much rivals certainly saw it as very much him just buying his way to success. So certainly, as they got promoted from the Scottish third division to the Scottish second division and the Scottish second tier, the first division, there was quite a lot of jealousy and envy. So he wasn't necessarily seen inside Scottish football as a sort of a fairy tale um, guy. But he he was a nice guy. And he was, uh, at this point, he, you know, he was on track to do something, you know, extraordinary. Yeah, I wish I'd known about this at the time. It feels like the sort of underdog story I could latch onto. Well, Rich, you say that, but there is a man that sort of might tie this story together or, or ring a bell to some people. It's the Duke, Kenny Duker. Yes. Now, I'm a avid Soccer Saturday fan. And as soon as I saw this name, I was on Nostalgia Lane. Um, but the Duke was the man that fired them up the leagues, wasn't he? As you say, Soccer Saturday fans will remember Jeff Stelling referring to Kenny Duker as the good doctor or Dr. Goals because he was a qualified medical doctor, Kenny Duke. He was 24 around the time they were in the, the third division, so he just qualified. But rather than go and be a GP or a consultant, he decided to try his hand at, at football for a few years. He'd been a former low-level and amateur pro. But the 2004-05 season, uh, when they won the Scottish uh, third division, he scored 38 goals in 30 games. He scored 93 in 63 league games during wow. his few years at the club. I, mean, I interviewed him at his house in Stirlingshire uh, on a snowy morning in January 2005 during that season. And, and by that point, when, when the interview was published in The Independent, he was the most prolific forward in professional football in the world that season, having scored 1.47 goals a game. In the feature, we, we took the top scorer in about 50 or 60 different leagues around the world, from the Premier League, every major league in Europe, China, America. And, and that 1.47 per game was higher than any other professional in the world. Thierry Henry's ratio, he was the leading scorer in the Premier League at the time, was was about 0.7 goals a game, which is still bloody good. Goal every two games. And the only other profession in the world who came close to, to the Duke was Tomasz Frankowski of Wisla Krakow in Poland. He scored 19 in 13 for a ratio of 1.46. So, yeah, I mean, I think people will remember Jeff Stelling and his Dr. Goals things. And, and Duca's own biggest buzz came on New Year's Day that year. He'd written to Jeff Stelling um, to say thanks for all the good Dr. Name checks. And he also mentioned that his gran, May, was Stan Stelling's biggest fan. So then he scored at Montrose that day, and, and my gran got a mention too, he told me. And when I got a second goal, Jeff Stelling said, good news, May, your boy's done it again. And he said, he told me his gran was buzzing for days because she'd been had a name check from Jeff Stelling. So that was Kenny Duker. And that, that was sort of, and, and he was with them right up until that final in 2006, which, as I said, they lost um, on penalties, having, I think they equalised very late in normal time and it went 
30 minutes of half time and then it went to penalties and they lost the cup final um, on penalties. But it was a, a meteoric uh, rise and a sort of three, four year fairy tale. This is a wholesome story. This is this feels a bit different to our normal football and covered episodes. This is a really wholesome story so far, Nick, but I, I, I worry that there's some bad news around the corner. Yeah, I mean, his health, as we've discussed, wasn't good. In the SPL in 2007-8, Gretna had to play at Motherwell's ground because their own ground wasn't fit for top-flight football. They ended up uh, relegated on 13 points after being deducted 10 points because they'd entered administration that season. They'd actually piled up £4 million of debts despite the fact that Brooks had said he would sort of stand by the club and support them. And then he became really ill and he actually ended up withdrawing his financial support. That's why they went into administration. They had to withdraw from the Football League so they had no players, no staff, no manager, no ground and no competition to play in. So the club was dissolved. And um, tragically, uh, Brooks Marson uh, had a heart attack uh, later that year and uh, fell in his pond in his garden and, and died. And it's a really, really salutary tale, this one, a cautionary tale about somebody, anybody really, bankrolling a club without any sort of um, safeguards in place to make sure that, that that there's a plan there for the future. And I think one thing about this, and we'll obviously also come on to what happened in Hearts in Scotland later, but you know, I think it's an interesting discussion point around what happened here and what UEFA tried to achieve, at least initially in spirit, with financial fair play, which is a sort of very controversial set of rules where you can't spend more than you earn. And I think this this is the one tale, Gretna, that I always hold up when I sort of try to make a defence of financial fair play, that if there'd been some sort of system in place that meant Gretna couldn't spend more than they were good for, it wouldn't have happened. Perhaps the rise wouldn't have happened, but ultimately a club that had existed since 1946 just ceased to exist. Obviously, he starts to pull his money out. Is that purely linked to him being ill and having sort of this this moment where he just wants to get out of football or is there other means? Yeah, no, I don't think there was anything more sinister than that. He'd obviously been in bad health. I think in that 7-8 season, almost every time they played, they were recording record new low attendances for for, for an SPL match. I think they, they had one game in the SPL where I think the attendance was 487, which for a top flight football match in Scotland... <laughs> wow. You know, I think that was the low point. So they reached notoriety levels where they recorded the lowest ever attendances in top flight football. They were getting hammered on the pitch and they were going to get relegated. And then they ended up ignominiously getting relegated, you know, having gone into administration during the season. So I think the writing was on the wall that to compete or even stay in the SPL was going to cost money. They've obviously in debt losing money to not even be very good. I think the writing was on the wall. And I guess at that point he thought he'd taken it as far as he could. The shame of it really is that a couple of times I did sort of say to him on the way up, you know, this is all great and it's not necessarily costing you that much money, but supposing something were to happen to you, you know, what what happens to the club? Because you're basically responsible for for them and bankrolling them. Without you, they don't do anything they've done. And he, he always sort of gave assurances that there was a plan in place, that there would be something there. And ultimately that proved not to be the case. Take Blackburn, for example... Jack Walker, Walker Trust were in place to run the club because obviously, you know, Jack was bankrolling it and, and you know, sort of made the Walker Trust so they would take ownership of the club. And feels like they needed him to set up his own trust to, to look after Gretna. Have, have measures been put in place since now, especially up, up north? 
I mean, there are various sort of league financial controls. I don't know the minutiae of what is in place currently in the lower levels of Scottish football. In terms of Europe-wide, and this is clubs who aspire to play in European competition, obviously they have to abide by UEFA's financial fair play. But actually, if, you, if your turnover is under £5 million, then financial fair play just doesn't apply because it's very unlikely you're ever going to get into European competition. And actually, most of Scottish football, certainly all the clubs outside of outside of the top division wouldn't have anywhere near like turnover of five million pounds so that wouldn't apply um there's not any particular cost control mechanisms that are effectively keep clubs stable but having said that it, you talk about really quite low levels of football outside the top division in scotland low attendances semi-pro rather than full-time professional clubs so gretna were sort of anomalous but it's just this idea that you know whoever you are whether you're Brooks Marlson at Gretna or Sheikh Mansour at, at Manchester City. If Sheikh Mansour suddenly, for whatever reason, suddenly decided that Manchester City was no longer for him, there would be question marks to, over whether, for example, that football club, as it's currently constituted, would stand on its own two feet and be profitable in the way it is now with all the sort of sponsorship money that comes from entities related to him and, and, and uh, the UAE. And and I guess that's why proponents of of um, FFP sort of argue that this is what it's there for to safeguard safeguard clubs. Um, and obviously, opponents of FFP will say that's nonsense. It's just there as a protectionist racket to stop um, other other clubs investing. Just back to Gretna. Obviously, the old club ceased to exist, but there's a Phoenix club, Gretna two thousand and eight. I think they're called. Yes. Uh, but they're currently operating, they're in the Scottish football pyramid, aren't they? They, they can still work their way back. I, I don't know if there's another Duke in the mix ready to be unleashed on the lower leagues of Scottish football, but th- there is a Phoenix club for the for the town to get behind. Should we move on to Hearts? Yes, please. I mean, obviously Hearts are the team that did win that cup final against Gretna, which obviously, you know, tells us that we are apparently going to hear a good story now, a good news story, or are we? <laughs> Again, there's a, a character who took over hearts about 2005 was it was it uh, uh, nick and and uh, again this guy kind of maybe we knew a little bit more about uh, from the outset he, uh, vladimir romanov he made the sunday times rich list uh, what can you tell us about him from from what we know about his early days and, and where he was before taking over hearts so he became the controlling shareholder of hearts so in the 2004-05 season uh, his fortune around this time was estimated by the Sunday Times rich list to be between 200 and 300 million pounds. And he made his money uh, take, after taking control of state enterprises sold to the highest bidder during the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So interesting. Not, not in the sort of oligarch tier of Roman Abramovich, but sort of similar sort of uh, idea. He and associates also started Lithuania's first private bank, the Ukios Bank, and he had interest in metals textiles and property, among other things, in various East European countries. His bank, much later, was closed by regulators amid allegations of fraud, embezzlement and money laundering, but we weren't to know that at the time. This is what we like with a with a football owner. You know, you just want a sprinkling of embezzlement and money laundering to really spice up the story. I mean, this is obviously, you know, the bank, but this, this, is, this is much later. We knew him, right? So he was like, in the you open the Sunday Times and there he was Vladimir yeah Romanov. yeah he was in the yeah. rich list and he was he was an established businessman and he you know he had he had this money so the start of the 2005-06 season I guess anyone who follows Scottish football you know will remember this season 
and and for the first months of this season, Romanov was an absolute hero because the manager George Burley won the first eight SPL games in a row, which was their best start since 1914, and went unbeaten in the first ten to be top of the SPL in a season where obviously Celtic were expected to, or Rangers were expected to sort of uh, romp to the title. And what did Romanov do after this winning streak and a 10 unbeaten? He sacked Burley. It was announced as mutual consent, but Romanov was basically interfering with player acquisitions and even team selections, and the two men just couldn't work together. So he's he's what, just telling Burley which players he's going to sign, how to, what formation to use? I don't know. Like what's Yeah, I mean, that, that was certainly the rumour. We'll come on to exactly how true or false it was in a bit. But that was the rumour. Certainly there was they just didn't get on. I mean, it's remarkable, really, because it was such an amazing start to the season. Yeah. And it wasn't just sort of they had easy fixtures and were fluking it. They had Craig Gordon in goal and they had Presley in defence and they had, you know, they had some tricky wingers a big lad up top and they had a, a Julian Brellier, a, a defensive midfielder who seemed like really fantastic and they gelled well and they were playing good football and it all seemed to be so exciting. And then um, obviously the, the, the balloon was popped when uh, the owner sacked the manager who'd got them there. So the candidates to replace Burley, the names that were being uh, uh, put around. So Bobby Robson, Claudio Ranieri, Otmar Hitzfeld, Nevio Scala, and Ozzy Ardiles, all of whom had applied for the job. This was in October of that season. And then on the 1st of November, or by the 1st of the no- November, there'd been a boardroom purge. So Romanov sacked the chief executive, a guy called Phil Anderton. The chairman, George Folks, resigned. Anderson's sacking was a shock because he was meant to be in charge of, of replacing Burley. And, and Folks was replaced as chairman by Romanov's son, who was called Roman. So, you know, it's almost like, not just shooting yourself in both feet, but punching yourself in the face. You've gone from what may be a, an absolutely amazing season to falling out with everyone who runs the club and sacking your manager. Again, kind of stinks of this like arrogance and ego that we sometimes see where it's like, well, I can do everything better myself. So, you know, let's bring in my fam- yeah, my son. Or- Is that not more of a, like a, a trust thing, even from watching copious amounts of Netflix crime documentaries or just like... Obviously, he was a dodgy man, so he wanted to bring in people that he could trust. Is it more of that sort of thing? Yeah, but I mean, if he was working with sort of people who were doing the right things at the club, I mean, being top with, you know, nine, I think it was nine wins in a draw out of your first 10 games, you suddenly had people writing about exciting football you playing. They had a good blend of Scottish football and, and imports, including some Lithuanians. The club seemed to be on the up. They were getting attention well outside of sort of Scottish football. And sort of to take a wrecking ball to the manager and the executive team who were doing that just seemed, you know, just counterproductive. I mean, this guy, he was an eccentric almost in the mould of Cellino at Leeds United, um, perhaps a little bit more sinister. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It was a year later, Scotland were playing Lithuania in Kaunas in a, a Euro 2008 qualifier. And he invited us, and by that I mean the press pack who were covering Scotland on that match, to his mansion in Kaunas for dinner. And he put this whole room was full of tables with all this gorgeous food and wine and whatever. And he held court to, to, to a group of us as we, as we ate at it at his house on how corrupt Scottish football was and how the SFA had an agenda against him, which was one of his running themes. And then at about midnight, he snapped his fingers and a group of extremely intimidating bouncers stroke bodyguards were instructed to drive us to a dodgy nightclub 
and stay with us until we wanted to go back to our hotel. It, it was that kind of clicking your fingers and suddenly you've got henchmen. That was sort of the aura around him. I mean, did it feel intimidating or sinister, the fact that he sort of like piled you onto this nightclub? <laughs> the intimidating bit was the bodyguards and the henchmen. It's like, why does this guy need so many heavy duty security guards? And I guess it's just the line of business he was in. It was nothing more than that. I mean, actually, it was quite a generous gesture. He'd invited us into his house. He'd been very entertaining, albeit in, in a fairly libelous way about various people in Scottish football, and basically sent his bouncers with us to make sure we didn't get into any trouble. So that's generous, but it's just that aura of somebody who yeah. needs big bodyguards and lots of them does sort of make you pause to think. There was a fight, basically, in the club, and somebody got quite badly hurt, and they refused to go to hospital, and they were bleeding profusely from their head, and so I took my T-shirt off. I had a, I had a T-shirt on and a shirt over it, so I took my T-shirt on to stem the bleeding on this guy's head. Is this person from your group? I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> but they refused to go to hospital and instead went back to the Scotland team hotel where the Scotland team doctor sewed him up. No way. Ultimately, the injury was sort of accidentally caused, but it was quite bad. And there was a lot of blood and uh, and the Scottish medical team sorted it out. Back to your notes. In 2005, we sort of have this press conference uh, with him, um, but he assured everyone, especially the Hearts fans, that nothing was going to be bad. No wrongdoings were going to happen. So Vladimir, the, the dad, was in his fifth, late 50s. But Roman Romanov, he made chairman, was like this baby-faced sort of, you know, young businessman. So at his first press conference, he's basically having to try and convince us, the press, that his family weren't going to asset strip hearts and sell Tynecastle because it had transpired by now that Romanov Sr. had spent only £6 million to buy a 55% stake of the club. And the club had saleable assets of £30 million and there were rumours doing the rounds that there was talk of selling Tynecastle to property developers. Um, that didn't happen, but this is the, the guy's first press conference. Is, um, is that because... Um... Like I've been to Edinburgh, a beautiful city, and yeah. what is Tynecastle like rooted right in the in the middle of the city? Yeah, it's it's in the West End, it's in Gorgie, and it's bang in the middle of sort of housing. It's 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 a lovely ground actually. I re- it's real character, and I think the the ground that I find most like the Dell in the world is Tynecastle. That real sort of old school ground, close to the pitch, great atmosphere, surrounded by you know housing. And so, if it had been sold to um, property developers. And it had been knocked down and replaced with, you know, 21st century blocks of executive flats. Uh, you know, the suggestion was that property developers would pay something like 20 million quid for it. So that was a worry for the fans. And then a week after Romanov's uh, press conference, with obviously the expectation that Hearts were going to be managed next by Sir Bobby Robson or Hitzfeld or Ranieri, Hearts' new manager was announced. And it was Graham Ricks who'd just been manager of Crawley. Nick, if you're a Hearts fan, obviously, take me back in time, would you be excited at the prospects of Graham Ricks taking over your club? I think on the balance of Bobby Robson, Hitzfeld, Ranieri, no. (laughs) It wasn't just underwhelming from the sort of managerial point of view, but Ricks himself had to spend his first press conference saying that he'd been given an unbelievable opportunity and he had to defend the owner's decision to appoint him because there'd been fan protests about his appointment. And the reason for that was because he, obviously a lot of people will know this, but he'd served six months in prison in 2009 uh, after unlawful sex with a 15-year-old, and he was still on the sex offenders register. 
So that was a problem for some fans. So as an appointment, it wasn't just underwhelming, but it was controversial. Ricks himself, he said he was not shocked, but maybe a little bit disappointed by the fans' reaction. And he said, they don't know me. Obviously, I'm going to work hard at building up a relationship with the fans. And Roman Romanov, that's the baby-faced chairman, said, in Russia, we have a saying that a man beaten by life is worth two men who are unbeaten. And Ricks was sacked after four months. Less said about some of that stuff, the better, really. I mean, that seems like a very bizarre appointment, naturally, not only from a footballing perspective, but also due to his... uh criminal activity essentially and now we're on the hunt for a new manager but we've got a new shortlist to get excited Ooh, about nice. yes the shortlist this time is marco tardelli lota mataus and nevio scala but obviously hearts chose who was it nick valdus even of course he was a lithuania former lithuania player and he was actually assistant coach to ricks and he himself lasted seven months but he did at least win the scottish cup in that match that we talked about against gretna in May 2006. And now it gets really strange. There we go. <laughs> it was around this time that Vladimir Romanov employed a team of Eastern European New Age therapists to diagnose injuries and decide where the players were fit enough. So we all remember Eileen Drury, don't we? The Glen Hoddle, he used to put his hands on players' heads to sort of divine whether they had a hamstring or an ACL injury. But one of these New Age therapists that Romanov employed was a healer who was only known as Rima, who reportedly tapped golden sticks onto body parts to ascertain fitness. And then there was another guy called Pajama Man because of his striped medical scrubs he wore at the uh, training ground. And he used his hands to manipulate energy fields in the players' backs. I'm open to a lot of things. Obviously, you know the story inside out. Is this um, an approved medical procedure? I don't think so. And I don't think the players thought so either. So there was sort of various rumours doing the rounds about players, you know, saying they needed to be somewhere else when Pajama Man or Rima arrived (laughs) for therapy. So it was... um, Yeah, it wasn't ideal. So then the following month, the three most senior players, Stephen Presley, Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Hartley and Craig Gordon, who we all know from from playing in England, they held a press conference where they said in public that there was a lack of, I quote, backing direction and coherence at Hearts and that it had caused significant unrest in the dressing room. And they were basically calling the owner useless in public. Can you imagine Virgil van Dijk, Sadio Mane and Jordan Henderson call in a press conference to say that the owners were absolutely useless and that there was significant unrest in the dressing room. It just, it was just remarkable. And Vladimir Romanov responded by threatening to sell them all and field a side of teenagers instead. (laughs) I mean, that was his response. Perfectly reasonable response, isn't it? Brilliant. And what actually happened is they were all gone pretty quickly. Presley was gone a couple of months later to Celtic. Hartley followed him the next month, also to Celtic, and Gordon was sold Sunderland at the end of that season. Imagine you're a fan there. You'd just be like... But you're selling them to your rivals. You're not just selling them. You're selling two of the best players to your rivals. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine from the beginning of the 2005-06 season when you've unbeaten after 10 games and in sacks the manager who took you there? And then, you know, a year later, uh, he's getting rid of the players who've sort of been at the heart of what could have been something really, really promising. I actually think this is the craziest one we've had so far. Um, And it does get crazy, doesn't it, Nick? Because they're debt-ridden. It's the summer of 2007. Uh, Like you've put in your notes, it's been a dreadful year for Hearts. But uh, there is one bright spark. Yeah, I mean, the debts, by the way, £36 million in debt now. 
from having put in just th- six million to, to buy the thing. Suddenly, they're thirty-six million pounds in debt. But happily, Vladimir Romanov won Lithuania's version of Strictly Come Dancing that year. So that was a good thing. Quality. Now, I don't want to be salacious or libelous, and please tell me if I am, Nick. Um, but to win the Lithuanian version of Strictly Come Dancing, uh, a man with that sort of wealth at his disposal and connections, um, was it purely based on his dancing ability? I'll um, have to say yes. And, yes. And, and, and um, I'll send a copy of this to his lawyers. <laughs> I can imagine that would be the most passionate about his dancing ability. I think by this point, the Hearts fans were just in despair at what had happened, sort of the turnaround from from everything looking so promising for a couple of months to just the chaos of the subsequent years of what happened next. And then in the subsequent seasons, they started to fail to pay the players. Uh, on several occasions, they got threatened with administration and a winding up order by the taxman. Uh, Romanoff had stopped putting what small amount he had put into the club, so they... I mean, this is ridiculous, but by summer 2013, the whole squad was put up for sale and heart-centred administration. So this is another casualty, uh, not quite as catastrophic as Gretna, but um, a club in administration with all their players up for sale. And they ended up being bought by a fans collective and then got relegated. But at least their fate was now in their own hands and Romanov was history. But just for the month in month out chaos of, of Romanov and we, we've only really scratched the surface of some of the more eccentric things he said and did particularly uh, accusations he made against referees and the SFA continually this this was just an absolutely extraordinary episode well what, what I'd like to do actually is uh, is play a little a game a mini quiz uh, for you both because okay. Romanov did say some some pretty interesting things uh, I've got three quotes here yeah and I want you to you to both tell me whether it's real, it's something that he said, or whether it's not something that he said. Got you. Okay, quote number one. When a lost goat wanders into your cabbage patch, you must not let him make a mess of the cabbages. Throw him three carrots so he can find a way home. Does that sound like something Romanoff would say? It does, actually. It does sound, I don't know if he actually said it, but it definitely sounds like the sort of thing he would say. Will? I'm going to go with yes as well, because there's actually a profound message in there. Yes, it's correct. Wow. That is something that he said. I've no idea why. Second quote. The beauty of me is that I'm very rich. I think yes. Okay. Nick? <sighs> I don't know. I, I, I think no. Nick is correct. That, those words came from eccentric madman Donald Trump. Oh. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, two, two one to Nick at the moment. Uh, the final quote, Will, you've got to get this right okay. to your level. Unless Nick also gets it right. Quote three. The fans are the golden fans for the country. I appreciate them much more than all the oil and gas reserves of Russia. Um, I think that's false. Okay, Nick. And I think that is something, that's the sort of thing that he would say because he's just like a pandering eccentric who wants to suck up to the fans. So I'm going to say true. Correct, Nick. It's true. You just wipe the floor with Will 3-1. Hat trick. <laughs> Can you imagine that, saying that he appreciates the fans more than all the oil and gas? Total bollocks, but he's just <laughs> sucking up, isn't he? There you go. Uh, did you have a... You also had a poem from him as I well, did. Uh, yeah, sorry. We, 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 just to finish off, you know, we should talk about what Vladimir is up to now. A couple of interesting things. Um, he gave an interview at the start of the year um, which I actually wanted to touch on. Um, and do you know where he gave his interview from? Prison? 
No. Uh, perhaps even more crazily, he actually gave it from his own personal K-19 nuclear submarine. Wow. wow. Which was uh, one that he used to serve uh, on during his days as a member of the Soviet Union's Navy. I'm not sure why he's living on there, but... You can it, get him. I is... just watched the documentary on Soviet Union submarines and you can get them at a well good price. Yeah, really? Yeah, I actually... I, I know that sounds like absolute bullshit, but I did watch a documentary uh, on that. Well, I look forward to doing... God, the places this podcast there. is taking us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can get them at a very reasonable Maybe price. Maybe we can get them as a sponsor. Yeah, Soviet but you, Union I'd imagine it's quite films. a good place to poach, isn't it? Because you're just alone with your thoughts. Well, yeah, I, I, it's not clear why he's uh, living there, but it, it did say the 72-year-old is still wanted by 72? Lithuanian authorities for allegations of fraud, embezzlement, and money laundering and was wanted by Interpol, uh, but took refuge outside Moscow and is now a Russian <laughs> citizen. <laughs> took refuge so, um, he, he's asked been writing poetry, you know, when, you, when you've... Um, About dancing. Of, Sold hearts. Well, I'll, I'll sort of read you uh, his poem, The Frog. Okay. The mountain road rumbles after the heavenly rains, and the hills fill with gurgles and murmurs beneath the orders of the earth's dome. A white stone lies in the bog under a solitary reed, all puffed up a frog croaks at the call of his restless mate. Longing to be with her, he puffs out his chest to be number one in this boggy kingdom and produce a dynasty of brave offspring who will trumpet the glory of these places, a living symphony above the ordered chaos of earth and the clock ticks to mark my passing years. Beautiful words. I know, that's I about... Wonder, I wonder whether the Boggy Kingdom was some sort of reference to, to Hearts and, I know uh, and the about. SPL. Presley, Hartley and Gordon, that's about. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> the Rickerton Three, they became known as. You know, I was writing for The Independent, which didn't necessarily always cover loads of Scottish football being based in London, but they had, they took, it was almost every day they were ringing up going, have you got any more from Hearts? Because it was just such a soap opera. Could have been so different because also in this interview, um, he actually said that he came close to buying Liverpool. Who didn't? Yeah, he said, we played Liverpool when I was at Kaunas and we were a goal up. So I presume he owns a, a Lithuanian club. Yeah, before, yeah he owns uh, Kaunas, yeah. Yeah. I agreed a deal with David Moores, who was their chairman, to buy them for 200 million. At this time, my budget at Hearts was tiny, as I said, but we even drew up a preliminary contract. Unfortunately, my financial partner um, wouldn't agree to releasing the funds, but I told him we would have got 120 million back straight away by selling Steven Gerrard to Roman Abramovich. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so uh, that was one of his, uh, he's called it one of his biggest regrets in his business life what not being a fugitive <laughs> living on a submarine writing poetry about frogs <laughs> yeah wow. i think that is uh, one of the most salacious episodes we've had so far i think so let's leave it there shall we thank you nick thank you very much as always for your your deep insight and uh, and close connections to these uh, to these characters good quiz as well i enjoyed that quiz thanks well wait I, I, i'm thinking like actually as i say by the end of uh, this series we'll have a lot of great uh, content here for more uh, more owner-based quizzes. I feel like there's a, a novel or a book, Nick, and just called How Not to Run a Football Club. Mm. I think Steve Bruce should write it. <laughs> <laughs> right, everyone, thank you for listening today. One of the strangest episodes to date, um, and that takes a lot to say from some of the stories we've had so far, doesn't it, Rich? I'd say very peculiar. Strictly come dancing to a man that had 100 fags a day. We've learned a lot. Uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review. Uh, it helps us out enormously. If you want to follow Nick Harris, go to Sporing Intel on Twitter to follow Sporf. It's at Sporf. And do let us know what tales you'd like us to uncover next because we'll be right on it. Uh, cheers. Cheers.
See ya.